This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Good morning. My name is Andy Haynes, and I uh, lead collegiate ministry. For those of you that I haven't met, I lead collegiate ministry at the Baptist Convention of New England, and I'm excited to be with you again this morning. Thank you for your support of collegiate ministry, the cooperative program, and most of all, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Uh, Amy, my family's here this morning. Amy and I are uh, personally thankful for you and the way you have involved us, even at a distance as we live in Worcester, in your ministry, mission, and life. So thank you. You guys uh, mean a tremendous amount to us and our family. And even this morning, the kids are just excited talking about who they saw in the room and coming in. And um, that's, a, that's a tremendous blessing and a picture of the bigger body of Christ across our region. And, and I want to thank you for being part of that. Um, we're going to continue in the theme uh, that you've been in this summer, when the, when the ex- ordinary meets the extraordinary, encounters with Jesus. Um, and today we'll be looking at an encounter between Jesus, his closest disciples, and 10 lepers. And this is from Luke 17, 11 to 19. So if you have your phone or Bible tablet, Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This, this interaction occurs on the way to Jerusalem, and specifically, it occurs as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the final time. He's already set his face toward that city to go and endure the cross, and that, that comes from Luke chapter 9, 51. He's determined to go the cross. I think, you know, while it's an event, this encounter that can be taken in isolation, I think it's important for us to see how the Holy Spirit superintended Luke's writing to include this event where he did in the scripture. If we back up just a couple verses, I'm going to back up to verse 5 and just read this for you so that you get a larger context from Jesus' teaching of how this encounter now illustrates and plays into that teaching. So picking up in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? 
Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. These brief passages relate to the quality, not the quantity of one's faith. Right? And the reality that God is God. God is the Lord. I think it's appropriate that we sing, Holy, 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 there is none beside you. There is none like you. Right? So this, this reading, especially when Jesus is talking about the servant, can, can seem kind of confrontational to us, and it can be an affront to our sensibilities. Yet at the same time, the Lord, he is Lord. And should we expect to be equals with the Lord? Right? God is holy. He's altogether different and above us such that we're not worthy to stand on our own before him. Except through Christ can we stand before him. And even as his children, whom he dearly loves and to whom he has shown his love through Jesus, we're still not his equal, nor will we ever be. In other words, we don't have a claim on God. A hold on God. God has a claim and a hold on us. Right? And it's against this backdrop that Luke wants us to understand Jesus and his disciples' encounters with these ten lepers. So I'm going to unpack six parts of this encounter that merit highlighting. The first is a call for help. Verse 13, a call for help. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The lepers saw Jesus on his journey and called out for help. Now, in that day and time, leopards lived in isolation. They did not mingle with other people. They were rather outcast. The Old Testament law stipulated how lepers should live. And this is from Leviticus chapter 13. In fact, there's a couple chapters, 13 and 14, that deal with all kinds of diseases, but a lot of them leprosies, diseases of the skin says this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And this time, in Jesus' place, it was outside the village. They're isolated. It's a hygienic law that helps in the protection of people from the spread of the disease. Now, in this time, it's also important to understand that leprosy included a broad array of skin diseases, and there's many historical accounts, including but not limited to the Bible, from the time of Jesus and earlier that describe what we now know to be a bacterial disease, uh, leprosy, and this bacterial disease just so we have a context for it, it was not until the 1940s that it was adequately treated with, with antibiotics. Right? So this law really was for the protection of people. But for the leper, it brought on a tremendous separation and isolation. Not a good life at all. Right? These ten lepers were living outside the village as unclean. It prevented contact with people. 
We don't know how long they were afflicted, but the reality is they were afflicted, afflicted and life for them was entirely different because of this disease. Their experience was not one of full life. They were, in essence, trapped. And when Jesus saw them, when they saw Jesus, they responded to his presence and called for help. Being lepers, these ten, they had never traveled to hear Jesus speak. They couldn't be in crowds. They did not walk with Jesus or follow him anywhere. They did not firsthand hear his teachings. They only heard about Jesus from someone. Right? Like most people today who've heard something about Jesus. These ten, though, were in a state that constantly reminded them they needed help. They had heard how Jesus healed people and they called to him for mercy. They needed physical mercy. They were calling out for help with their physical condition. Just like today, we may call a doctor or 911, they call Jesus, right? And sometimes even today, we can call Jesus for help. We know just enough about him and what he can do to want help in our situation. And I'm not passing judgment in saying this, but rather stating what is often true. In times of physical distress, in times of financial distress, emotional distress, whatever it is, we need help. And it's only in those moments that we call on Jesus, right? Or whoever we think can help us. In their time and place, they understood they had an opportunity and they called to Jesus from what they knew about him. Just as today many would call on Jesus desperately in need of the hope that he could provide to meet their need. And so they called. And in verse 14, we see a divine command. Right? Jesus answers with a command. Go and show yourselves to the priests. So according to the law, going back to Leviticus, the priests were the authorities designated to proclaim a leper clean of leprosy. So in one sense, it's a physical healing. So if we think of it in terms of an oncologist saying to a cancer patient, you are cancer-free, we know what that moment can feel like, right? All of a sudden, you have hope and a future and life and possibility. So there is definitely that pronouncement that would be a great relief and hope for them. But it's also a statement that would allow them to re-enter society, right? And re-enter life from isolation. Jesus was commanding them to go to the priests who would proclaim them clean, right? Now, this is not a normal method of healing for Jesus, he didn't just simply say to them, you're clean. He's directing them toward a whole re-entry into life. And in many ways, he's telling them to go to the priest and show themselves to the priest because he's wanting them to re-enter a full life. And he's setting them up for that. Right. So who knows what the lepers were thinking? I'm sure they had heard the stories where Jesus just touched somebody or looked on somebody or somebody reached out and touched his clothes. All of that resulted in healing. 
Or maybe they were hoping Jesus would just look at them and say, I'm willing, you're clean, right? And even just keep walking. Who knows what they were thinking, but they obeyed. You know, and it's important that, that we recognize it is hard to appeal to someone as master if you're not ready to do what they say, right? This command that Jesus gives, go and sow yourself to the priest, is also a reminder of Jesus' place in ours. He could have said, be healed. And he can also say, go do this. Right? He is Lord, and he knows what's best for all of us. And this is what's interesting. Because Jesus knows what's best, he also knows what they're really asking. Right? He understood what we come to see later in the passage is that their hope, like many of us today, would be for a temporally better situation. Just a re-entry, a chance to live life here as we know it. Many who call on Jesus want help in an immediate situation, and their appeal is to Jesus who can help, not necessarily to Jesus who is the Lord and who is the help. That's a distinction, right? Jesus recognizes that, and he doesn't pronounce them clean. There's always intentionality with our Lord. And so it's fair to ask why Jesus does something or does not do something. There's not always an explanation. Because remembering our place, it's not always ours to know why or why not the Lord would do something. But here in this, this circumstance, we can appeal to other scriptural healings and get a glimpse of what could be explanation as to why he didn't just say, you're clean. Why he didn't pronounce them clean. First, he was recognized as a rabbi, not a priest. And it would be the priest's work to pronounce them clean, right? And again, part of the community. At other healings of lepers, particularly Matthew 8, Jesus also sent those lep that leper to the priests who would proclaim them clean and able to reenter society. But in those instances, Jesus was more direct. He said, be clean. Luke chapter 5 records a singular healing where he says, go and present yourself to the priest as a sign to the priest. Right? He's presenting himself as the healer and master, and he wants the priest to see it as well. Right? He's always showing forth his glory. Healing would proclaim his authority. For instance, at another healing, he healed a man on the Sabbath as evidence that he himself, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? To proclaim his glory and authority. In one instance, he forgave the sins of a paralytic and then healed him in order to show the crowd that he had the power to forgive sins. It's a declaration. In regard to the ten lepers, there's no clean pronunciation, no I heal you, no your faith has made you well, just a simple go and show yourselves to the priests, right? But then we see divine action in verse 14. 
The command required a bit of faith and obedience, and all ten went. As they went, they were healed. As they went, specifically, they were cleansed. This is ordinary meeting extraordinary. This is power at work. Right? This is unique in that the healing occurred as they obeyed, but it's not singular. There's a few other instances where actions were required and miracles. If we think about Peter stepping out of a boat to walk on water, he had to walk on water to walk on water, right? He had to do it. Or if we think about the time that Jesus told his disciples, cast your net on the other side, and they're like, oh, Jesus, first of all, we're the fishermen. Second of all, we've been fishing all night and haven't said anything, caught anything. But third of all, because you said it, we'll do it. They had to do it, and then what happened? They caught the fish, right? So we shouldn't think that this is just a singular event. There are times where these miracles require a demonstration of faith. There are moments when God works through our obedience in extraordinary ways, and this is one. In each of these occurrences, Jesus is calling people to faith, Now, I I appreciate theology, and I read the Scripture uh, to inform and build my theology, but sometimes theology, if we let it, will become an end in itself and distract us from what's happening. Here, Jesus has given a command, the lepers obey, and the healing occurs. Now, I'm not going to build a theology from this one story of salvation, but we can clearly see this. Jesus is the Lord who should be obeyed and trusted. It's not just a pure rote obedience, it's a trust to him. If we trust him, we obey him. And the truth is that saving faith is not a mental exercise, but the entire reorientation of your life and my life around Jesus and his values in life. That requires effort, but that effort comes from trust and love for God, not effort to try to get or earn from God. Jesus did not promise to heal them. He simply told them to go to the priest. They trusted enough to go even though at that moment they were obviously lepers suffering with a very visible disease. They were sick and he told them to go. He didn't touch them. He didn't proclaim them clean. He sent them and as they went, God acted and they were healed. It's not just that their wounds healed up but they were cleansed of the scourge of leprosy. So that when they got to the priest, the priest would have no choice but to say, you're clean. Right? And how did that happen? Because I saw you this morning and you were unclean. Right? These ten, we don't know a lot about them. We know they were together. We know at least one was a foreigner meaning not Jewish. They had some knowledge of Jesus. They accepted the command to go. They lived to a degree in a religious culture, but we don't know if they were religious people. They wanted to be healed. They wanted back in. And as they obeyed, they were cleansed. 
In 2 Kings 5, in the Old Testament, there's the story of the commander of the army of Syria. His, his name is Naaman. And he was a, a leader in Syria. He was the commander of the army. He was large and in charge. He's commander of a powerful army. And that man, Naaman, also had leprosy. And so it held him back. He had to stay often behind closed doors. And he, he heard about a man, a prophet in Israel named Elisha, who could heal. And so he went to his house and called on Elisha. Elisha did not meet Naaman, but sent out a messenger with instructions, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman responded with anger. Right? He's like, the Jordan. First of all, my country, seven, eight rivers better than the Jordan. Right? So I'm not even, what is this? I'm not even going to deal with it. And so he's storming out. He said, I expected this prophet to just wave his hand over me and pronounce me clean. But that's not what Elisha did. He told him to go and bathe in the Jordan seven times. So Naaman's expectations weren't met. When our expectations weren't met, he responded with anger. Does that sound like any of us? We have an expectation placed on, on God and the expectation of how God can work and an expectation of how God should work, and we expect God to do it. In other words, we lay claim on God, and we put a hold on God. You say, God, your God, do this. And then we detail it. Right? Just like Naaman. Now, Naaman's servants came to him and reasoned with him and convinced him to go to the Jordan and do the dipping. He did and was cleansed. Despite his anger, despite his hostility, God's grace to him. Right? He did it and was cleansed. Why God works in the way he works is not always ours to know, but we can know this. When God works in the way he works, it often reveals our heart. It reveals our heart. Naaman's heart came shining through, and God's grace even more. Right? There's no greater example of this than Jesus himself and the cross. So many people of his time looked to him expecting to be rewarded with a kingdom because they followed Jesus. They expected him to be a king that would lead to their liberation, not die on a cross. God was working in a way that was unexpected by them. Should have been, but was unexpected by them. And in the process, what happens? The heart is revealed. If we think about our own lives before knowing Christ, you may have had some thought of the cross and the resurrection, and you can remember those thoughts and the attitudes and actions you had before them and know God was revealing your heart. And we need the cross, and we need the resurrection. Have you ever thought of the ways you lay claim on God? Maybe you expect him to do certain things for you, to give you what you want, and are ultimately uh, hurt when those expectations aren't met, and you direct that hurt and anger toward God. 
There are preachers and teachers today who will teach you that God will give you everything you want if you just fill in the blank, right? If you just do X, Y, and Z, you'll get everything you want. Let's read scripture again from Luke 17 with that thought in our mind. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because the servant did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Right? We are not in a place to demand of God. How easily we forget, especially in our culture today that's a service economy, how easily we forget that we are not in God's place. Now, if you want a good cup of coffee, you can get it, right? If you want to make your own good cup of coffee, somebody else will go and harvest the beans and get them to you for you to make it. If you want a meal after church today, you can go out and probably buy it, and somebody will make a good one for you. We don't necessarily live at a humble time in history. We live in a day where we can say what we want, publish what we want, demand what we want, expect what we want, and more often than not, get what we want in two days. Right? I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to highlight a reality of where we live today and the fact that all of this can build an expectation into us of how we should be treated and ultimately how God should treat us. In verses 7 to 10 of Luke 17, remind us of our place. We are in Christ children of God. Yes, for those with faith in Christ, you are children of God. We are citizens of his kingdom with a mission to fulfill. And it may be that while we're living that mission, sharing the gospel, we would expect God to do great things for us. But that is not the example of the Bible. If we look through the record of Acts and the letters of the New Testament, we see the record of men and women who follow God despite all cost and perils and understood that God is worthy of all their life and that God loved them with his own son. These are not competing demands. We serve a loving Lord, but he is Lord, and we never, must never forget our place. We're not equals. We're children. As Paul, and as Paul often addresses his letters, we are servants of the Most High. We are servants of God. Right? God lays claim on us. Understanding that, there is an appropriate response, and one leper got it in verse 15. This one leper has an appropriate response to God's grace. The other nine got what they wanted. They got healed and moved on with life. They'd probably go and tell that story to everybody they knew. You can almost hear them saying to their kids, grandkids, everybody in their circles, I'm healed. I was healed. And you get the sense that this one leper who came and said thank you would say, Jesus healed me. Right? Big difference. 
we often want to be the subject and God the object of our lives. Right? We would rather be prominently featured in the hero rather than God. So even in our speaking, we can make it about us and not about Jesus. And let's remind ourselves, Jesus is the point. One leper returned and got it and had an appropriate response in gratitude. And that's ultimately what Jesus is teaching here, is gratitude. The one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. This leper, he lost his concern to be pronounced clean by the priests. Rather, he wanted to give thanks to the one who made him clean. And at the end of the day, he recognized all of a sudden who it was that mattered, and that is Jesus. So leaving the, the other nine, he went on his way. You know, we don't know those other nine. We just know they went and got pronounced clean and went back in. But this one leper's action shows us a lot. His turning and going back speaks volumes. And just some quick things, right? Just some quick things we should take back just from this one turn that he had. First, you may have to leave a crowd to worship Jesus. You may have to, right? You may have to go it alone at times to follow Jesus. You may have been part of a community, and these 10, they were in a leper community, a colony. They were, they were what, who each other knew. You may be part of a tight-knit group that doesn't follow Jesus, and you may have to go it alone, right? But when you come to Jesus, you will find new love and a community in his church and you will never be alone. Right? This man, he goes with a loud voice. He can't hold it back. He's praising God. Praising God, and then he falls at Jesus' feet and gives thanks. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't mind. He accepts the praise and the thanks. One minute, a man is praising God, and then he is elevating Jesus to that same place. Jesus accepts it, right? Because he is the Lord. He is God and can accept this man's praise and thanks. This man was a Samaritan, a class of people in a, in a, a race that Jews considered inferior. They didn't relate, the Jews and the Samaritans. They didn't even converse. Yet he ignores all cultural convention, conventions and goes straight to the king of the Jews. This man, by his action, is showing great faith. And he gives thanks. What an example for us. How often it is that joy and gratitude follow faith. Even more, this connection between gratitude and faith. I'll be honest, when my faith is weak, my gratitude is very small or non-existent. And when I am grateful, my faith is strong. Right? While we live in a polite day, I don't believe we live in a grateful day. Right? Read the headlines, watch TV, listen to everyday conversations. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to be grateful like this leper. And our attitude will be a tremendous sign of our faith, but witness to him in this day and age. So it should be seen in our lives beyond politeness to a faith-filled gratitude before God. We do see a rebuke here, though. And this is fifth. That there's a divine rebuke in 17. And it's directed toward the other nine. They, these nine, they obeyed the command to go to the priest literally in the hopes that they would get what they want. They kept the command without ever turning to the one they called master. It's kind of nerve-wracking, actually. Because on one sense, you could look at them and say, well, they did what Jesus said to do. But in the other sense, we look at them and say they had no relationship with Jesus. It's a, it's a challenging spot. Their obedience directed them toward what they wanted, not the one they needed. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted the healing. There's nothing more difficult than when somebody uses religion for their own ends and feigns humility for self-centered purposes. It looks right, but is so wrong. That's why elsewhere in the Bible we see that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Right? Was their sin shocking? Is it shocking that they didn't come back and give thanks to Jesus, that they ignored the giver of the gift for the gift? It may not be shocking to us if we have experience with it, right? In my day, okay, I'm going to show my age. In my day, we prayed for a car. I know you guys are praying for phones and all that kind of stuff when you were young, right? My day, we prayed for a car. And then you get that car and you feel like freedom, right? Do you remember when you got your first ounce of freedom? whether it was a phone or a gaming system or a car or whatever it was. Maybe for some of you, it's just stepping out of home for the first time. You're just so thankful. But if that gift is greater than the one who gave it to us, man, that shows a lot about our heart. Right? Jesus takes this moment with a man at his feet worshiping him to teach his disciples. A saved person is concerned with the author of salvation. Many people would rather just have the gift, right, rather than the giver. So this one Samaritan leper shows me who I should be, and the nine show me who I often am. I can't speak for you, but for much of my life, I lived among the crowd expecting things and not living a life of faithful gratitude. And in that place, it's only a low quality of faith, just enough to believe, just enough belief to get what I want, not enough to worship and follow. And that's a shocking sin, right? I was looking uh, this week through Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, if anybody's ever read that. It details her conversion from faculty at Syracuse. Uh, she, was, she was a lesbian in a lesbian relationship, owned homes together. Details her conversion to Christ, and now she's a married, homemaking, I think even homeschooling Christian. 
She made the statement early on in her book that many people are drawn to her story because of the nature of her sin, which is lurid and shocking, and, and the nature of the conversion from an unlikely place. And, and people think, wow, what a conversion. But friends, all conversions are shocking, and all conversions are signs of God's grace. Can there be a worse place than these nine lepers found themselves, so close yet so far? Right? Those of us who grew up in church hearing great gospel truth yet not believing enough to trust and follow, if you know that place, hear Jesus again. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Where are they? Come to me. There's a divine rebuke, but there's also, in closing, divine grace. And that's verse 19. Jesus gave grace to all ten to heal them, and friends hearing the gospel, and love of God is grace, and listen to his final word to the one. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally, it translates, your faith has saved you. His grace is sufficient. His grace is evident to all. Come to the gracious one, right? He heals, he saves, he commands, he accepts, he leads, he loves. In Jesus, we are not coming to a hard master. We're coming to a loving Lord. If you're following Jesus today, hear those words again. Your faith has made you well. Grow in it, right? Brothers and sisters, thank God for faith and his saving of us. Thank God that he laid claim on us. Jesus gives divine grace, the Lord of the universe, who creates all things and ever lives infinitely and eternally, comes to us and gives grace. We have no claim on him. He has every right to make his claim. And when we have lived how we should before him, we should simply resonate with gratitude. We're unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty to understand how powerful and holy and true he is. But let us do so thankfully, because he who had no need has shown us grace and demonstrated his love for us and that while we would feign following him and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to save us. Forgive us for demanding of you and ignoring your demands of us. Forgive us for this idolatry. Thank you for your grace. Though we are undeserving, you are gracious to give us what we do not deserve. And that's yourself. We thank you, God. Help us, your children and servants, to live in humble gratitude today, exuding confidence in you everywhere we go to everyone we encounter. Lord, that we may be used by you to speak of this grace that others may be filled with true gratitude before you and your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.